0: And I'm very excited because today our series has brought us to what is arguably the most famous chapter in the entire book of Isaiah. And perhaps in the entire Old Testament, it is Isaiah chapter 53. Maybe you've heard of it. Have you heard of that one? Good morning. Hello. (laughs) Okay, good. Turn there. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and ushers are coming with uh, Bibles. We want you to have the written word there in front of you. Open up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. In 1947, a Bedouin shepherd by the name of Muhammad Adib climbed into a cave near Jericho where he stumbled upon the most amazing archaeological find of the 20th century. Maybe you know what this find was. We call it the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you ever heard of that? It was a cave full of ancient, ancient pottery, like 2,000-year-old pots. And inside each of these pots were ancient texts, scrolls, Of the Old Testament scriptures, some of them as old as 2,000, 2,300 years old. An amazing discovery. And they found this completely by chance. It was an accident. These shepherds were looking for a lost sheep, and there was a cliff with some holes in it, and they were throwing pebbles up to try to scare out these sheep. And they threw a pebble up, and they heard the shattering of pottery and it sparked their interest. I'm not a shepherd so I don't know I don't know if they throw pebbles and listen for a but they heard a shattering. So anyway, he he climbed up the the hill and he went into this cave and he discovered this amazing archaeological find. And inside one of these pots was a scroll that was 24 feet long made out of leather and it's a scroll that was the entire book of Isaiah, the only one ever found of its kind. So rare. They did carbon-14 dating, and they said it's probably somewhere between 250 to 350 years before Christ, B.C., making it the the oldest find of a text we have. In fact, many scholars say it's so old that it's probably a copy of the original book that Isaiah wrote, which is amazing, amazing. Why does it matter? Here's why it matters. Isaiah chapter 53 is a miracle. Did you know this? It is a miracle. Because in Isaiah 53, just look at your Bible, please, And let me tell you something about Isaiah 53. This chapter is the most detailed, vivid, graphic description of the death, suffering, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ of any place in the Bible outside of the gospel accounts. And God gave it to his people 700 years before Jesus was born. That's a miracle. He inspired his prophet Isaiah, who being carried along by the Holy Spirit, picked up some kind of a writing instrument And leather, and he wrote these words this vivid, graphic, detailed description with an explanation of why the Christ must suffer. And he wrote it seven centuries before Jesus was even born. It's a miracle. And God gave it to his people seven centuries before Jesus so they could prepare their hearts to worship him. How good is God? Amen. So great. They had seven centuries to get ready. We have two Sundays with this passage, all right? We get two Sundays because Easter's coming. It's just right around the corner. And let me tell you something, River West, Isaiah 53 is a treasure. My goal today is that you'll walk out of here recognizing what a treasure this chapter is. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's the crown jewel of Isaiah's entire passage, It gets quoted more than any chapter in the Bible in the New Testament. All of the gospel writers, the Apostle Paul, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, they all use it to build out their theology of the substitutionary death of Jesus. For 2,000 years, Christians have treasured this text. And did you know that no text has led people who are Jewish to faith in Jesus Christ more than Isaiah 53? Because they read it and they recognize the Messiah was right there under our noses and we did not see him. And they fall on their knees and give their hearts to Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. This, this chapter is a treasure. And I wonder today if it's a treasure in your life. I wonder if it's impacted you. Let's find out. We're going to read it together. I'm going to show you a couple things about it. We just look at your Bible? Um, the first thing I want you to realize is that the the poem, this fourth servant song, actually does not begin at chapter 53, verse 1. Just look at your Bible. It actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13. Why did they put the 53 where they did? I have no idea. They got it wrong. John Calvin said this chapter division is like a dismemberment of the whole song. It's just in the wrong place, and it is. Those are not those are not in the original Hebrew. Those were added later by by other people. But anyway, uh, our song, our fourth servant song begins in chapter 52, verse 13. And actually many people argue that there's a preamble which begins up in verse seven, which we'll look at in just a minute. But will you read it along with me as I read it to you? We're only gonna read the first six verses. Starting in verse 13, chapter 52. Behold, my servant, Pause. I promise I won't do this ever again, or we'd never get through this sermon, but behold is Isaiah's favorite word. We, we titled our series, Behold Your God. Isaiah uses the word. The word is the, is the Hebrew word henna, and it means an unveiling. It means that blinders are removed. It means that the veil is peeled away, and you can finally see, and Isaiah says, and God says, now I want you to see someone really important. Will you please pay attention and behold my servant, who will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You know, when you read the opening verses, next week we'll come back and we'll finish this text, but just when you read the opening, the very first thing that you experience as a reader is you experience a kind of tension. That's that's like the emotion that Isaiah is after is this tension. Because you know, as the reader, that the person that is being described is by far the most important person in the entire universe. And yet, people despise him. And so this tension sets in. And there's a tension because as you read, you know intuitively as a reader, his identity is crystal clear. If, any, if people would just look, they would recognize who it is that is being described. And yet people, when they hear him preached or communicated, they don't look at him. In fact, they hide their faces from him. And so there's this tension and you feel it. Isaiah calls him the arm of the Lord. Did you see that? Chapter 53 verse one, he says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a very common Hebrew word picture. The word, it shows up 40 times in the Old Testament and Isaiah uses it all the time. And every time they use it, it's a description of any time God shows up to do something awesome, they say the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The arm of the Lord means God in action. It means anytime God shows up to rescue, anytime God shows up to deliver, anytime he shows up to redeem people out of slavery, his people, anytime God shows up to do something awesome, the the writer will say, behold, the arm of the Lord has been revealed and it's strength and courage and God's going to do exactly what God's going to do. But in this passage, the arm of the Lord shows up, and what you see, it sets your expectations so high that you experience a tension, a letdown. Amazing. Why would Isaiah do this? I wonder. In fact, he builds our expectations from the very beginning. He uses this imagery of the arm of the Lord earlier. Look with me just real quick. I want to read the preamble to this servant song that begins in verse seven of chapter 52, where Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. This is such good news that the person who's carrying it, the people look and even his feet are attractive, which never happens. All right. This is like really good news. Okay. Okay. And he publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see. It's an imagery of watchmen at a city gate looking for a messenger. And there they see him, and he's bringing good news. And they want to see it. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And then look at this. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's an imagery of God showing up to do something mighty. Imagine a warrior. A mighty warrior steps forward. And the battle is about to begin. And the warrior is covered with a cloak. You can't see what's underneath. You can't see the weapons. You can't see the strength. And as he prepares for battle, in a moment of intimidation, he peels off his cloak and he reveals his right arm and it's gripping a sword and the muscles are ripping. Don't look here for an example of that. But anyway, the, the muscles are bursting and he's got a hold of that sword and you know it is on. It's on. And it builds your expectations. And Isaiah wants to build our expectations. And as you read, you're you're, you're thinking, I'm going to see something beautiful. But when you look, you see something that's not beautiful. And as you read, Isaiah says, there's going to be joy. But when when when, when, when the arm of the Lord actually shows up, he's a man of sorrows. And when you read, there's rejoicing and there's salvation, but the arm of the Lord shows up and he looks weak and tender and small he's a letdown. The arm of the Lord finally appears, and it's not what people were expecting. Why? We lost Billy Graham last month. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, an amazing, amazing man of God. There are many things I loved about Billy Graham. I loved his gospel preaching. I learned from him about the significance of accountability. One of the things I loved about Billy Graham was his self-deprecating humor. He would use humor, and he told a story one time of he was in an elevator in Philadelphia going down to the first floor to address a conference, and he was standing in the elevator, and there was a man standing over to the side of him, and this man turned to his friend and said, I heard Billy Graham is staying in our hotel. (laughs) And the other man said, he and he pointed over to Billy and he said he's in the elevator with us. <laughs> and this guy looks over at Billy and he for about 10 seconds he looks him up and down and then he says, "My. What an anticlimax." <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> right? Did you know the servant of the Lord was an anticlimax? It was not what people expected. Did you know that Jesus Christ, his life and his ministry, was an anticlimax for people. His splendor was not apparent on the surface. God had hidden the glory of Jesus beneath the surface so that you could only see it through the eyes of faith. The glory, the majesty, the splendor of Jesus Christ hidden behind the surface so that a person who sees it, you know that person, God has opened the eyes of their hearts and they've been allowed to see something that otherwise you could never see with worldly eyes or with worldly values. River West, can I tell you something? If you're looking at Jesus with worldly eyes and with worldly values, you will never see his glory. You won't see it. And Isaiah knows this. There are three values in particular in our culture that prevent people from seeing the glory of Jesus. Three of them. They are, this would be the moment to write this down, okay? If you're wondering, when's he going to do the three things that the sermon is built around? This, that was the moment, okay, when I said the word three. There are three worldly values that prevent people from seeing the splendor of Jesus. And they are success, power, and physical beauty. Did you see that? Isaiah wants us to see it. Isaiah says, and by the way, since the dawn of humankind, we have been worshiping at the altar of those three values, success, power, and physical beauty. And Isaiah says, if you are mesmerized by those things, you'll be blinded to the glory of Jesus. And that's why Jesus came. He actually came to die for those things, to take them and invert them and give them a new definition, to take them back and redefine them in gospel terms. So let me show you where they are. We'll start with success. You say, I don't see success in this passage. Well, it's right there in verse 13. We look at it with me. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, you may have in your Bible a little number next to wisely. And so if you look, anytime you have a little number, it's called a text note. It means that word is a little bit difficult to translate. And this word is, because this word doesn't necessarily mean purely just wisdom. Another way you could translate the word is to prosper, to be successful. But it's the kind of success that you get to because you act wisely. So the word really what it means is it means to to know enough and to act in such a way that you are prosperous, that you're successful. And Isaiah says, my servant will be like that. He will know the right things to do, and he'll do them with wisdom, and because of that, he will accomplish the purposes for which I have sent him. Did you know that Jesus accomplished exactly what God had sent him to do in the world? He was successful. Jesus was a success, not in the way that our culture defines success. Our culture is constantly clashing against the values of God And so we have a a definition of success that is not helpful. The world defines success as accomplishing human purposes. But Jesus defines success as accomplishing the purposes of God for his life. That's different. You say, I haven't been very successful in my business. Oh, but I don't care about that. Uh, can I ask you a question? Have you been successful accomplishing God's purposes in your life? That's different. The world defines success as accumulating as much as you possibly can while you're here. Whoever dies with the most toys wins, right? But Jesus defines success not as accumulating, but as Jesus defines success as giving up everything if it meant saving the ones he loved. The world defines success as winning, no matter the cost. But Jesus defines success as losing everything for God's people. And that's why Isaiah tells us what he tells us next. That he will be high and lifted up. Will you look at it in your Bible, please? Because I don't, this is not coming from me. This is coming from the heart of God. Isaiah says, my servant will be successful. And what will that mean? He will be high and lifted up and highly exalted. And you think, yeah, I like that. That's success. But wait a minute. Isaiah keeps going. He doesn't stop there. Because what happens is people are astonished in that moment. They're astonished. Why? Because this person becomes so marred that literally in the Hebrew it means that his humanity is torn away from him through suffering. That when people look at him, they wonder if they're still looking at a human being. And Isaiah says, That was success. Amazing. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 12? Verse 31, Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And when he said that, that phrase, when I am lifted up, that is, he took that straight out of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. He said, I will be lifted up. I will be exalted. And then the very next verse, John says, he said this to show by what kind of a death he was going to die. So for Jesus, success meant being lifted up on a cross after he had been filleted at the hands of guards who tore the skin from his flesh. And Isaiah says, he was successful. He was successful. People were astonished because they were looking for someone reverent. They were looking for someone impressive. They were looking for someone who was Strong or impressive or showed up with great composure, but no one saw that when they looked at Jesus. They saw something different. And so they couldn't see his glory. When I was a young man, right out of college, I got turned on to the writings of Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist. And I had heard that Dostoevsky came to Christ while he was in prison. So he'd become a Jesus follower. Because he loved Jesus, he would write into every one of his novels a character who was a Christ figure. Someone who represented the attributes or or the personality of Christ. And so I got my hands on everything I could read of Dostoevsky. You know when you're in college, you hate reading, and then once you graduate, you're like, I want to read. It's so weird. So I started reading Dostoevsky, and the book that I read that blew my mind was a book where Dostoevsky writes into the story a character who is a complete loser. His name is Prince Mishkin. And Prince Mishkin is meek and gentle And small in frame, he was weak physically, he suffered from epilepsy and probably mental illness. Prince Mishkin was this character who was so kind and forgiving, he treated people with gentleness. He always gave people the benefit of the doubt. And because he was naive, he assumed that people who he met would return the favor, right? And so... He's this character who gets constantly misunderstood. All the people who are around him, they see him and they don't understand. They see someone who's so childish and and so naive that they mistook him for someone who is unintelligent, even ignorant. And so Dostoevsky named the title of this novel. Does anyone know the name of the novel? The Idiot. The Idiot. When people looked at Michigan, they saw an idiot, but that's not what was hiding under there. Did you know that when people looked at Jesus, they did not see a winner? They did not see someone who was high capacity. They did not see someone who was impressive. They saw someone who lost everything for humankind. And Jesus said, and that's success. So how did he define power? Well, look with me at chapter 53, verse 1. How did Jesus define power? He's the arm of the Lord. And Isaiah says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the implied answer is, people see the power of God, they see the arm of the Lord The kind of people who see that power are people who recognize that ultimately God's power does not come through dominance, but through someone who will be weak. God's power does not come by crushing the enemy. It comes by someone who was willing to be crushed by the enemy and then return love and mercy out of that crushing. And Isaiah says, that's power because look what he's described as next in verse two. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is amazing. So Isaiah is saying, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he didn't show up like a mighty oak. He didn't show up like a massive fir tree. He showed up like a tiny little sprig. Is that even a word? I don't know. It it comes out of the ground. On my property, my wife and I just bought land. We have fir trees that are so big, I can't even wrap my arms halfway around them. And today when I was leaving, I, I drove out and there was this massive fir tree and then right next to it was this tiny little shoot that had come out of the ground. It was so tender that if you stepped on it, it would die immediately. And Isaiah says, That's how Jesus came into the world. And you think of the incarnation. You think of being born as a baby, the God of the universe, the creator, squeezing himself into frail humanity and experiencing the vulnerability of being born. He was tender. He was at the mercy of his mother who cared for him. He grew up in unimpressive circumstances. His family came from... Nazareth. No one had heard of Nazareth. They overlooked Nazareth. That's where Jesus came from. And what's amazing is that as Jesus grew, he didn't become more impressive. He became less impressive. The more that he grew, the more that people disregarded him. So did you know that the people who were closest to Jesus are the people who became the most confused about his identity? The disciples watching him and and questioning him, wait a minute, who are you? Isn't the Messiah supposed to conquer and reign? Aren't you supposed to wipe out Herod and take back the throne and be our our victor? John the Baptist was in prison and he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, hey, just like cut the fat with me. He didn't say it that way, but he said, shoot straight with me. Are you the Messiah or not? He was confused because Jesus appeared differently than people were expecting they were expecting someone dominant. They were expecting someone mighty. They were expecting someone who would, who, would, who would conquer, and they got someone who was tender and weak, someone who allowed himself to be tortured. People didn't see Jesus because they were working with a different definition of power, and they could not see that God was at work right under their noses doing something mighty. And can I suggest, River West, please listen to me, what are the chances that we don't see God at work in power because we're looking for something different than what God's actually doing right under our noses? Right? God is at work. He's probably at work in your life. But maybe you only, maybe you only have one definition of power. It has to be some display of, of miraculous healing or it's not power. Last month, a man in our church shared the gospel with his best friend and neighbor. And then they prayed together and that other man came to faith in Jesus Christ. Power. But I hear people say, I don't see any power. What? Last month in our church, a married couple who were on the verge of giving up went to a retreat, a marriage retreat, and God saved their marriage. Amazing power. But I hear people all the say, say all the time, I don't see God working in power. Last month, a man, a young man in our church felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit about his use of pornography and he repented and he walked away. But I hear people say all the time, I don't see God doing anything with power. It's right there under your nose. We have such a warped, distorted definition of what power is that we miss what God is doing right here in my life. I don't want to challenge you. He's at work in your life if you will look for it. Amen. Amen. Jesus redefines power. But he does one one more third thing. Now, this third one is gonna make us a little uncomfortable. Okay. Physical beauty. Did you know that Jesus apparently, as sacrilegious as this sounds, Jesus was ugly? Apparently, He was not a very good-looking guy. Don't strike me with lightning, Lord. (laughs) Right? We don't like that. But look, Isaiah wants us to see it. It has to be said. Look what he says. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And that phrase, form or majesty that we should look at him, in the Hebrew, that's just the way of saying he just was not handsome. Apparently, he was a really average-looking guy. Which is interesting. King David, King David was a really good-looking brother. Apparently, he was a great-looking guy. Joseph was really good-looking. Abraham's wife, Sarah, she was really beautiful. So was Rachel. But apparently, the servant was not. He was unattractive. And you go, this feels weird. Why are we, this feels kind of shallow. Why are we talking about this? Exactly. It's shallow. And our world is shallow. And do you know what? In our culture, we base our opinion about things based on whether or not we find them physically attractive. And so Jesus came into the world and said, no one can come to faith in me because they find me visibly appealing. It's got to be a, it's got to be under the surface. In the church, in America, we are so tempted by this. We're so tempted to be attractional, right? We're so tempted in the church in America to put on a show. We're so tempted to have high design sensibility, to have slick presentations. To have fog machines and laser lights and super, you know, professional models playing electric guitar, and there's celebrity pastors up there, and they spend as much time building their brand as they spend building Sunday's sermon. And then the temptation is to think we can we can draw people in. It's easy to draw a crowd, but that's not what the church is. The church is not a crowd. And so at River West, we have a saying, no celebrity pastors allowed. <laughs> no celebrity pastors allowed. And at River West, we're, we're comfortable blowing it sometimes. We do silly things at our church. I led worship one time, a long time ago, and I was totally into it, and I was worshiping, and then I looked up and no one was singing. And I realized I didn't put the lyrics to this song in the media shout and everyone was looking at me like, you are so silly. You, Prince Mishkin. Anyway, that's our, that's, and that's, we're just a family here. Amen, River West? We're just a church. And we're never going to attract people by trying to be attractional. Because people come to faith in Jesus because God opens the eyes of their hearts and they're able to realize the real beauty is underneath. It's hiding in there. Did you know that Jesus Christ actually became more beautiful, the more ugly he became on the outside. As he suffered, he became more beautiful. But it took eyes of faith to see it. That's what Isaiah says last. Verse 3, he was despised and he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, which basically just means his whole life became marked by sorrow and suffering. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." As Jesus moved towards the cross, towards Good Friday, towards being obliterated and filleted by Roman soldiers, people wanted to look away, people who were looking with worldly eyes. But there were some who God was at work in their hearts and they could see there is a beauty here and I need to see it. Amazing. One of my favorite stories that I've ever read is a story by uh, a, an English, a literature professor named Walter Wangren, And it's, the story is called The Ragman. And it is a parable that's told of a man who's walking through the streets of a highly depressed community where there's poverty and suffering, and this young man is handsome and strong and strapping, and he's pushing a wagon, and in the wagon, he has all of these brand new rags that are clean and they're folded, and he's a rag man. And as he walks through this city, he comes upon people who are suffering. So he comes upon a young, a young woman who's weeping, and she's filled her handkerchief with tears. And he says, let me exchange that rag and I'll give you a new one. And he pulls out a new rag and he hands it to her and immediately she stops crying. And as he takes her rag, he begins to weep. And then he keeps walking. And he comes to a young girl who's bleeding from her brow and she has a cloth trying to stop the blood. I think of little pictures of girls in Syria where a bomb has gone off. And in the story, the ragman walks up to her and he says, "Let me have that rag." And he takes it from her and immediately her bleeding stops and he gives her a new one, and as he places her rag on his head, his brow begins to bleed. And then he comes to a man who has no arm. And he says to the man, "Do you have a job?" And the man says, "Of course I don't have a job. I don't have an arm." And so Jesus, the ragman, it's Jesus, I just spilled it. Anyway, uh, the ragman takes the cloth that's covering the stump of his arm, pulls it away, and immediately a new arm grows, and he walks away without a limb. And he walks off to his death. And it's, it's a picture of beauty. It's a picture of Power and it's a picture of success, not as the world defines it, but as Jesus defines it. And God wants to open our hearts so we can see it today. My prayers will see it as we go to the Lord's table, as we take communion. We'll recognize this is the most beautiful, powerful, successful act that's ever been accomplished in human history, and my heart needs to change as I receive it again today. We pray with me about that? Father, we confess this morning that we become so influenced at times by our world. By our world's values and our world's definitions. And we come in here on Sunday and we need you to help us and heal us and correct us and take back these things that we've allowed our world to hijack. And so we thank you for Jesus his perfect life, his perfect death. It was glorious, but not not at first appearances. And so help us today to see him for who he really is. I just sense, Lord, this morning that there are many who have come today who have been glancing over Jesus And I just believe that in your mercy, you want to open eyes today to see, maybe for the first time, to see the glory. If that's you, if I'm describing you, this is a beautiful moment in your life because God's allowing you to become a follower of Christ. Just go with it. Let him lead you and just pray today. Maybe take communion for the first time as a follower of Jesus, as a lover of Christ, as a believer. Confess your sins and proclaim in your heart as you pray that Jesus died for your sin and he rose again in power. And if you pray those things, you have become a Christian. And we praise God for that. And so, Lord, would you... Guide us now into worship, we pray. Guide us to the table. It's a family affair. We're honored to sit among brothers and sisters and to share this meal. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you, River West.